Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And we're very lucky today to have Michael Hanchard on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Specter of Race, How Discrimination Haunts Western Democracy. It is out from Princeton University Press in 2018. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm currently uh, the Gustav Kamerli Professor uh, and Chair of the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I run a project called the Marginalized Populations Project, which looks at marginalized populations in a comparative perspective. I grew up uh, in New York City and uh, was educated at uh, Tufts, the New School, and Princeton uh, for my PhD. Um, thank you very much for that. So let me ask you this. Why did you write The Specter of Race? Well, it's a book that had been uh, rallying around in my thoughts for some time now, partly since uh, graduate school. Um trying to make sense of what I'd learned up, up, up until that point and why I had not uh, encountered too many books or even articles, at least in political science, that um, addressed uh, questions of race and racism uh, in, the, in the discipline and how the discipline itself was constituted. Um, anthropology's had those kinds of discussions. Sociology's had those sorts of discussions. Um, philosophy now is a rich literature uh, discuss, uh, in, on this topic, um, less so up to now in political science, although there are now younger scholars who are putting out uh, very interesting books about uh, the race concept and its effect on the discipline and effect on methodologies. Uh, so I felt it was a book I needed to write in, in part um, as, a, as a kind of gift to my discipline. Um, and so uh, that's what in some sense, prompted me to, to write the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it covers a huge amount of territory. You you begin with the Greeks and you come all the way up to today. I mean, literally almost today. So it was a huge undertaking. And I certainly admire that. Um, in the first page of the book, you introduce the concept of autochthony. And you say that it's important to uh, your central claim in the book or one of your central claims in the book. And that is that the concept of race took the place held by autochthony in Athens. Could you explain what autochthony is? Sure, sure. Um, it comes out of the Greek from uh, loosely translated as uh, the, the notion of origins um, of, uh, of a people, and li- literally those people who are tied to a territory and soil. Uh, and have that relationship to that to each other through territory and soil, and so autochthony was used um, really as a kind of political myth uh, after the Persian Wars, after 451 BC, um, to make citizen, Athenian citizenship more exclusionary because they were afraid, given both the number of wars they they had been in, but also the 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 uh, range of foreigners that were in. Uh, and traveling to uh, Athens uh, of the time, um, but also the role of women uh, could potentially upend the dominance of Athenian males. And so uh, after 451, 
a law was created to basically uh, exclude those from citizenship who could not prove that they were descendants of people who literally sprang from the soil, right? And so, and but also, it was also uh, patrilineal, not matrilineal. So the idea was that those who sprang from the soil and who were eligible to participate in politics as citizens uh, also had to be male. So this excluded women, it excluded foreigners, and of course it excluded uh, the enslaved, right? So, so, so the short version of it, which I detail at length in the book, is that if we think about, um, by the end of the book, I talk about and I describe uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Trump campaign and then Charlotte, Charlottesville, Virginia, and the ways in which uh, many of its uh, proponents and advocates uh, argued that uh, their goal was to create a, a, an ethnostate in the United States. That is to say, an, a, state, a nation state that was so-called racially, and I use this in scare quotes, homogeneous, and that its population was consonant with uh, the the rulers or the ruling class or the governing class um, of people, so that there was this symmetry between the state and the nation and the people and territory. So what that would entail, essentially, is utilizing instruments, political instruments, and coercion to ensure that certain populations don't have access to the right uh, to vote and to participate in the in the politics. So when we think about the uh, campaign that we just uh, went through, which produced uh, the 46th president of the United States, and all the problems with voter pers- pers- uh, suppression, the tampering of, elect- uh, of voting machines, the scarcity of voting machines in certain uh, parts of the country, um, many commentators who have made made a note of this, that many of these uh, dysfunctionalities occurred in predominantly Black, poor, and Latino neighborhoods. Um, In many ways, we find a contemporary iteration of the autophony desire by basically trying to manipulate the outcomes of the vote uh, and suffrage for the purposes of of, uh, Trump not only being... uh, elected, re-elected, but also, in some sense, uh, keeping a certain class of people, uh, socioeconomic terms and elite terms, uh, at the top. And in, in effect, that's one of the kind of broad continuities between the Athenian past and the contemporary present. Do we know how the Athenians who invented the concept or criterion of autochthony defended it? Well, um, part of it was, yeah, so, so one of, one of the, the rationalizations was that, um, that there was a fear that with the presence of foreigners and uh, the indebtedness of uh, uh, male citizens in certain transactions to these foreigners, uh, some of them exchanged citizenship uh, to relinquish their debt, Right. And so this bartering of, of citizenship um, for debt uh, for debt payment became one of the fears that eventually uh, foreigners could actually overwhelm or outnumber the amount the number of citizens. So it was a way of making uh, a citizenship non transferable, right? Um, and and in gender terms, it was uh, 
you know, it's unfortunately one of the the, the uh, so many uh, societies and civilizations um, uh, forge or try to impose uh, patriarchal structures on a given politics and a given polity. And so Athens was no different. That's fascinating. I, yeah, that's really quite fascinating. So could you explain how autochthony in Greece is different from modern racial thinking in comparative politics? Well, this is a great question, not just for comparative politics, but for thinking about autochthony and uh, restrictions. There's a pretty intense debate, actually, uh, going on now um, in in several areas of of classics and classicists, um, some of whom uh, claim that that there is enough evidence to demonstrate that there was a sort of race concept or an ethno-national concept operative in uh, in classical Athens, and it was a way to naturalize uh, citizenship. Others uh, have argued that, uh, in fact, there's no there's no real evidence for uh, the existence of a race concept uh, in classical Athens that resembles uh, in, in in content. Uh, the contemporary uh, kind of logics which uh, imp- try to impose a racialized view of the world. Um, but again, these are these, these are debates that are going on now, and, it, and a lot has to do with the direction of uh, of, of the study of the classics. Um, and I think an attempt overall to give an impression uh, to kind of remove the study examination of Athens as some ideal form. Uh, and understand it as one political uh, option among many political options. But even that political option uh, was not designed from the outset to produce uh, equality or parity amongst all peoples who live in a society. Now, this required the distinction between uh, citizens of a society and society members, right? That is to say there could be people um, who are uh, not citizens, but are um, but actually live in society, and they can make their own impact upon political and social and economic uh, processes. But uh, they would have to basically they would have to get laws changed in order to, in effect, uh, restore them or place them at the same level of of citizens. Uh, this is a related question, and and you may not be able to answer it because actual classicists may not be able to answer it. Did the Athenians think of kinds of people in racial terms, that is, according to phenotypic characteristics? Yeah, question I can't fully answer. I mean, there's some uh, uh, consideration that uh, Demi Casimus and others have, have looked at this. Um, and there were, uh, from my reading, there were... Uh, Conditions of servitude and gestures and behaviors and sort of changes with, with servitude, which in many sense provided evidence or proved that a being or a group of people was subordinate to another group of, of people. But um, uh, but whether we could would call that race in a contemporary sense um, is a sep- is a separate question. But I think it's important to recognize that what. Um, the autochthony uh, kind of doctrine has 
and, and that, that's similar to contemporary manifestations of certain kinds of bigotry, is the effect, in essence, to um, uh, naturalize the idea of citizenship, right? To say somehow that based on certain characteristics of people and not their behaviors is what determines their uh, ability or capacity or entry into into a polity. Yeah, it's a, almost an attempt to naturalize it so that, yeah, I'd, to kind of give it the gloss of somehow biology or science. Yes, yes. And that would, of course, you know, by certainly by the late 19th century, we see, I mean, even earlier, but where it really takes off with the proliferation of different nationalisms uh, at the cusp of the 19th and 20th century, um, you know, nationalism brought with it uh, in, in certain forms the idea somehow that, again, there was some uh, uh, unity between, across nation, state, and people that bears a trace of both race concepts but also concepts of autochthony. And that uh, in the end, uh, by the uh, late part of the 19th century, uh, Edward Augustus Freeman, who wrote the first uh, book that I can find uh, devoted to the study of comparative politics. And he was part of a cohort of scholars who uh, wanted to wanted to study comparative politics in order to prove, in a sense, in essence, that uh, what they call Euro-Aryans were state-making people par excellence, that they were the best state-makers on the planet. Um, and so we get that version or the correlation between race and state uh, in these writings. Um, but we also see it in other other arenas um, as well in the work of Hegel and others um, that the barometer of a civilization uh, is dependent upon their capacity to, to create a state uh, and, and moreover, the capacity to create a functional one. Yeah, this is a nice segue, and you've answered my next question, actually, and that is about the late 19th century comparativists. Can you say a little bit more about Freeman? I mean, I think of myself as pretty well read, but I had never heard of him. Right. Well, I'd say probably the the sort of tongue-in-cheek way I've characterized uh, Freeman in different lectures is that he was a 19th century historian um, who really... uh, got uh, taken up with the comparative turn. And that comparative turn actually began earlier uh, in the study of literature. Uh, One Chauncey Shackford in 1871 basically announced the existence of a comparative literature that would serve the role of basically destroying the boundaries between discrete um, literatures from different different parts of the world. And that... uh, Literary works could be examined on their own in relation to the themes and the uh, subject matter and the character uh, development, um, and that uh, that would that man's methodologically meant that uh, it would help universalize the study of human beings and in the making of comparisons. Um, Freeman is what I would characterize as an equal opportunity big, bigot. Um, if you read um, many of his works, um, they're, they're just uh, suffused with racist and chauvinist uh, sentiment. Um, uh, but again, at, at the top of the heap for him 
were the Teutonic or Euro-Aryan peoples. Um, he would have an impact um, uh, uh, clearly on Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of the United States. Um, and he was invited to Johns Hopkins by the uh, founder of the seminar, seminar on historical and political science by uh, Herbert Baxter Adams, who was in many ways one of the, and I use this term facetiously, one of the shine, guiding lights, if you will, of the Teutonic school who believed that Teutonic state makers were the best uh, uh, state makers. And each of them, Woodrow Wilson, Freeman, and Adams, in some sense, conducted research to prove scientifically, but in the most anti-scientific way, uh, that they already had an answer to their question. Who were, who were the best uh, people at politics on the planet? And for them, it was the Euro-Aryan or the Teuton. Mm -hmm. But Baxter himself is a fascinating figure. He had studied in Germany, yes. where, where he got his chops, so to say. Yes, 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 yes. And, yes. and I think you say something very important here, and it is that this group of people, if I read you correctly, and if what I know is correct, were avowed open racists. They made no attempt to hide this because it was not, at the time, shameful. yes. Yes, yes. And, I, you know, it's interesting because, uh, again, in the case of Wilson, I mean, if you look at several of his writings, uh, particularly the book The State and an earlier version of it called The Modern State, which is uh, in Princeton libraries, he makes very, very clear um, that his affinities for racial hierarchy um, and uh, like a correlation between racial hierarchy and political uh, sophistication. Uh, and uh, in one of his lists of, uh, of criteria necessary to create a modern nation state was that the population and had to be homogeneous. That was the first criterion of measure for determining how successful uh, a nation state could be. And so when he, had, when he commented, for example, uh, uh, in the modern state about... Um, the capacity of Negroes for self-rule. Uh, and this was basically looking back by then on a Reconstruction. And although he, he uttered many racist statements, he also had to, made a qualifying statement to say, uh, I do not, I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I, I don't like these people not because um, their skin is dark, but their brains are dark, right? They have not had uh, enough uh, study uh, to be sophisticated enough state makers, right? Um, and so that was, in some sense, the... And these, the, the seminar that Baxter Adams held had many students who would go on to teach in various colleges and universities um, with, with these ideas in tow and with some of their classes in tow. So in some ways, it became a sort of sim, a syllabus for, or a syllabi for, studies in racial and ethno-national domination. Yeah, Adams was very important to the founding of the modern American university system because he That's brought right. it over from Germany, right. and then he started the first seminars at Johns Hopkins, and then Harvard and Yale that didn't really do much but train pastors and preachers took it over from Adams. Yeah, but I should also say, and you comment on this in the book, that these relatively esoteric academic studies had an impact on policy. And I'm thinking about immigration policy in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so if we look at um, you know several different uh, uh, laws, I mean, going back to 1789, um, uh, up to now, even you know uh, discussion of uh, so-called illegal uh, immigration, that the idea that um, certain populations should be encouraged to come into the country while others not, and that encouragement or discouragement among among several other factors, one of them was uh, or the questions of origin, right? And not the question of behavior or whether uh, the person of whose background actually made them cognizant of, of uh, what, what these thinkers would think as modern politics, um, but basically solely on their so-called origin. Yes, and you see this notion of like, for example, the yellow peril, which was openly talked about. I mean, nobody hid it. It was it was common sense that you wouldn't want to let these people into your country. Yeah, and, and I really think that's one of the things that modern people, I mean, people today forget is that is that racism at that time didn't have the stigma, at least among certain populations, that it does today. Yeah, um, I. I it's fascinating, actually. But then you, you go on to a kind of second era in the history of comparative politics, and that is the mid-20th century. And at this point, they're working in modern disciplines that we can recognize, like political science. Um, and it's at this point also that the idea of race is kind of at least explicitly removed. Can you right. talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, it's, it's an interesting moment in a couple of ways, because... I mean, uh, one way, one marker, epical marker, would be uh, the 1955 uh, uh, meetings at the Social Science Research Council, uh, uh, the politics of developing areas, which basically would become a kind of uh, incubator, if you will, for, for scholars who were interested in looking at the comparative study of political institutions um, across the world and across civilization. So in some ways, going back to Shackford's initial um, uh, idea. And uh, oddly enough, in many ways, um, the question of race per se um, and and the nexus of race and politics um, was largely absent. In its place were were the use use of the culture concept, in some sense to supplant the race concept, and the use of uh, notions of, 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 of tribe or ethno-nationality, but in many ways using the same kind of language about hierarchies and cultural hierarchies instead of racial hierarchies that um, had their origins in some of these uh, this racial mythos, right? This idea that you could hierarchically order people based upon their capacities for with state building. One of the ironies I found, I discussed briefly uh, in the book, is the fact that, um, you know, 1955 is 10 years removed from World War II um, and the uh, Nazi onslaught uh, uh, basically that, you know, basically brought all of Europe to its feet um, with its designs to basically remap Eastern Europe and what we now know as you know as the Baltic states or, or formerly Russia, the Soviet Union, so that it would map on to and be coincident with uh, Hitler's uh, and other racial thinkers he associated himself with with their ideas of racial racial hierarchy. 
So basically, we're going to create a kind of a cartography of state in this part of the world that matched their racial matched their racial reasoning. Right? You had at the same time scholars who were uh, Carl Deutsch, I can, I can think of. There are several other uh, students of either comparative politics, sociology, or anthropology who did uh, at least make mention of this moment in, 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 in West history and self-imagining. Um, and the, the re- need to recognize the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the dastardly deeds uh, and, and dastardly organizations and institutions that inflicted uh, so much collective misery and genocide upon different peoples in order that it not happen again. But in the politics of development areas, um, there's a kind of curious silence, if you will, on the discussion of the role of racism in contemporary politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, after World War II, uh, race as a scientific construct, at least in political science and certainly in history, was taboo. It, it, it really couldn't have been mentioned. But it has this kind of peculiar afterlife where proxies emerge. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good way, to, that's a sort of more elegant way of framing what I had um, said in some sense, the kind of the, the proxies that's, that stood instead of the kind of blatant use of racial or ethno-national concepts. Yes, this is one of the many times that you find what, what I sometimes call racism without racists. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes and that's uh, the work of people like David Theo Goldberg and uh, Eduardo Bonilla-Silva in the contemporary moment who've applied that term to think about. And, 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 and it's an interesting concept also because it, it brings home, it returns us to how ultimately this concept is a, is a cognitive and epistemological one. It's not a natural one, right? Um, and so that there can be existence of, 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 of racism in, in places, even in the absence of certain populations. Right, it's based upon a kind of a mode, a mode of thinking and a mode of reasoning uh, that also informs, for example, European, European immigration. So, if you look at the rise of new right and authoritarian uh, 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 political parties in Europe, such as Alternative for, for Germany uh, in Germany, uh, in uh, in Austria, in the Netherlands, um, they too uh, share common sets of assumptions about the fears of uh, non-desirable immigrants polluting the society and polity. Uh, And that would entail not only demographic shifts, but also the creation of uh, impure peoples, right? Or people who are not uh, industrious enough or work hard enough, right? Um, these, these, These opinions of different populations often came with uh, a series, a chain of associations that were made to equate certain people with essentially uh, uh, anti-citizen or, or retrograde uh, ideas about uh, what it means to be a political being in the world. Uh, then you go on to an area that I knew nothing about because I graduated from college in the 80s, and so I sort of stopped reading political science. <laughs> you continued, though. And this is the uh, cusp of the 20th and 21st century and the ways in which the comparativists adapted to what was essentially a new world without the Soviet Union, and you call it the perestroika era. 
How does comparative politics change in that era? Well, I'm not sure, actually, looking back, if it actually changed that much. I mean, I think there are two different ways, at least two different ways by my imagination of what um, what's, what impact Perestroika had. One was to, uh, in some sense, a reaction against uh, more positivist understandings of political science um, that sought to completely separate fact from value, um, but also to... Uh, to, to treat uh, qualitative and interpretive methods with with some disdain, um, at at, at the uh, and the preference for uh, mathematical and quantitative models to make sense of uh, political phenomena, um, uh, the creation of new journals, the idea in some sense to de- to open up or democratize the formal institutional and professional. Uh, discussion and treatment of a variety of different uh, uh, political phenomena and concepts, not just uh, race, race or racism. But again, I I didn't I didn't really see Perestroika as having that uh, uh, transformative effect on what gets studied and how uh, when we're talking about ethnonationalism or, or, or difference. One of the things I noted in graduate school and this was in the late 80s and 90s, is that suddenly people in disciplines that had formerly been not historical became historical. Suddenly history mattered a lot. I was very, I was very happy to see this as a historian. The case of Russia is obvious because since they did return to an autocratic form of government, people were wondering why they did that. And the historians were all saying, well, if you look at their history, you will see why. Did you see a similar sort of thing in political science? Was it historicized, so to say? Well, you know, there was, there, there, for a long time, there's been uh, several subgroups, uh, groups within sub, different subfields um, uh, that paid a lot of attention to history. Uh, politics and history, social science uh, and history. Um, uh, American political development, for example, um, was very much wedded to uh, methods that uh, emphasize his- history and historical inter- historical interpretation. Uh, so that's actually been an enduring feature in comparative politics. But again, the question becomes, then, well, you know, how, how is it used and how often should it be used? And it can be used uh, in lieu of certain other, other types of scientific uh, methods. So the question is, what, what is the value of history? Um, among other uh, uh, themes or disciplines within the discipline of political science. And I think one of the issues that I've uh, had dealt with, you know, during my career as a teacher is often I teach a course in qualitative methods and I point out to the students very, very early, early on that, you know, the major texts that became utilized um, uh, as the basis for political science actually came from sociology and then later anthropology. So you can think about the, the, the trilogy, the, the threesome of uh, Marx, Durkheim, and Weber, right? Um, and so political science has always been a, a, a discipline that's borrowed uh, uh, methods and concepts from other disciplines. I think where we're at now in the discipline, and we've been for a while, is what makes uh, certain uh, methods uh, legitimate 
modes of uh, of scholarly inquiry and what makes others less legitimate, right? So it's not so it's not so much uh, uh, whether a discipline is porous or not in its relation to other disciplines, but which which parts of other disciplines are considered uh, more favorable or more amenable to political science than others. I just remember very well in, in graduate school being assigned certain works by Clifford Gertz in every class sure. I took. <laughs> sure, sure. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a quote in the book I used from Gertz uh, from the interpretation of cultures. Um, an essay where he writes that the sort of period of the politics and development is um, uh, uh, after after World War II was a period where, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that that scholars from a variety of disciplines uh, came to to the recognition that they were all working with the same data. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. That, that you know, in 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 inimitable way, right? But that's a classic example of a of a text. Again, whose the origins come from another discipline. Mm-hmm. And part of what I'm, I do in the book is I have a section dealing with this relate this longstanding relationship between political science and anthropology, um, and the creation of a, the subfield within anthropology called political anthropology. Um, and I guess, in some sense, I'm revealing my own uh, training. Um, uh, as a, as someone who went to graduate school in uh, the mid 1980s to to 1991, um, these were the, the texts and debates and arguments I was I was weaned on in a sense. I was too. Um, so in the book, you have a really wonderful comparison of the ways in which France, Britain, and the United States have treated creating boundaries, so to say, between an in-group, usually ethnic, and out-groups of various kinds. And there are interesting distinctions among them. Perhaps we could begin with the outlier, and that is France. Mm-hmm. How did France deal with these questions? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess one question for you would be, how is France an outlier? Yeah, how is France an outlier among the group? The United States, Britain, and France, in terms of dealing with essentially imperial or conquered or colonial populations and the notion of citizenship. Oh, I see. Well, I think that even today, I mean, there, there's there was actually a long article in the New York Times about a week or so ago about uh, kind of brouhaha involving uh, Emmanuel Macron and several uh, French scholars, in some sense. Um, uh, who believe that the the language and concept of race, which they always often argue invariably as somehow an import from the United States, was diverting attention away from what it was called Proudhon first referred to this as a social question, right? So in some sense, uh, uh, subordinating subordinating other types of political phenomena to uh, to class formation. Um, and there's also enough scholarship now uh, to demonstrate the ways in which, even in the absence of what in France, in French scholars refer to as the racial statistics, which they often harken back to uh, the Vichy regime and act as if there were no other moment in French history where uh, well, racial distinction or ethnonational distinction 
really mattered. Um, and if you actually look at uh, France's immigration policy, for example, um, you know, it, it's, it's very, very clear that um, despite you know, these claims to the, con- to the contrary, that you had and have preferred populations that France missed. So if you think about, for example, you know, certainly by you know, the, the, the range over the, by the 1950s with the Algerian uh, War for Independence, which the French government uh, refused to acknowledge as a war for independence. It was referred to in state speak as, a, as basically an operation uh, by criminals to kind of unsettle the French state, not a desire for actual independence. And there's a kind of uh, what roughly could be referred to as a kind of Latinized, Latin model of uh, relations between different populations in a polity. And the overarching frame in France is the idea of and the practice of republicanism, right? But it's become clear that, for example, even in contemporary debates in France about uh, about uh, Muslim extremism, right? Um, uh, and targeting of Muslims and not targeting of other uh, organizations and not not entire religions, but other organizations from other religious denominations that also have their own uh, intolerance and often aggressively intolerant uh, dimensions in its interactions with other peoples uh, and groups. And I think France is still grappling with um, its, its self-image. But I think for Britain and the United States as well, um, you know, it goes back to um, what Goffman referred to as impression management, right? The idea that you could have these uh, societies and policies that were supposedly the beacons for democracy uh, throughout the world, um, but in their colonial imperial po- policies, they clearly uh, abided by a different set of rules uh, and a different administration and different modes of, of treatment for, for, for different populations, right? There was anything but uh, race or ethno-nationally uh, neutral, right? And so even in the contemporary United States, we think about the discussions and what the utterance of Joe Biden after January 6th, he said, well, this is not who we are. Well, you know, my question is, well, then who, who are we now? <laughs> the United States. And, and, and it's clear that, you know, the, that the kind of threat of white supremacy has been coursing throughout uh, the history of the United States uh, in its constitution, in its political culture, uh, in its uh, behaviors that um, unless you know, states people and everyday people acknowledge this part of U.S. history, um, uh, the country will be forever in some sense mired in these kinds of competing uh, idealizations of what the United States is and could be. Mm-hmm. In contrast to France, where you have this kind of party line about inclusive republicanism, Everybody yes. who is the subject of the French state is fully French. Right. That's what they said. That's um, right. If I could tell an anecdote, I was doing some research on maps produced after World War One, mm-hmm. and one was done by a French cartographer, and it showed uh, the ethnographic composition of Europe and North Africa. Mm-hmm. And of course, it had all these tiny different colored blotches all over the place until mm-hmm. you got to France. And Algeria, they were just blue. 
Just blue. Exactly. 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 <laughs> and argue that the different versions of this, um, uh, what, what I call demographic disappearance, the idea in many ways to minimize, neglect, or just outright ignore you know, these questions of, of, of difference. So one of the ways that uh, many French demographers in, in recent years have gotten around this because uh, many people have assumed, many uh, specialists in France and uh, assumed that uh, many of its prisons were disproportionately populated with people from the Maghreb, for example. Uh, and um, because France did not keep so-called racial uh, national statistics, uh, the, the, the state could deny the existence of this disproportionality in its uh, in its prison population. Um, but uh, several very capable demographers and sociologists were able to get at um, some sense of the disproportionate amount by going by last uh, by surnames, for example, um, religious affiliations, um, and the like, to give us a better approximation of what the inequality lurking behind uh, universal or so-called colorblind republicanism in France. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the British and the Americans took a very different tact from the French, and they were all about classifying populations in terms of, I guess, what we would call ethnicity. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yes, yes. Well, probably, I mean, probably the most prominent case in recent memory uh, occurs in Britain with the um, what came to be known as the uh, the Windrush generation, the yeah. generation of uh, the Car- mostly Caribbean uh, British subjects who came uh, to Britain at the request of the British government because the population, British population was so devastated by World War II and they needed to rebuild its infrastructure. And so these people were encouraged to come to Britain only to face severe hardship uh, when they arrived and being treated like they had no claim to British identification um, at all. And also a campaign undertaken uh, to basically start to rid, uh, to uh, question the status of many of these uh, populations and their descendants and, and in effect force people to go back to their so-called countries of origin or their children, a place that either they've never lived or not lived for several decades, right? Um, if you think about, um, you know, the, the, the separation of families um, policy that was undertaken under Donald Trump, and it remind, reminds me in certain ways of the the McCann-Walter Act, and, and, um, which in effect helped, you know, on one hand, it, 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 it got rid of certain inequalities in the amount of people and the variety of people that could come from different parts of the world. But on the other hand, it also maintained certain kinds of inequities um, in the distribution of, 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 of immigrants coming into the United States. Mm-hmm. At one point in the book, you point out that all nation states, historically speaking, have been comprised of minority groups, ethnically speaking, and that the idea of a pure nation is a myth. And I would say that every historian that I know would agree with this. 
And my question to you, and you may not be able to answer it, I certainly can't. Why do people keep returning to this myth of the pure nation? Why is it so attractive? Well, I think there's a, I mentioned this at the end, the end of the book, um, that I think in some ways uh, the advocates of the sort of pure nation, a homogeneous nation, assume with homogeneity amongst its popul- its national population, there will be less prospects for pl- internal political conflict, right? Um, but we also know from looking at a variety of different uh, countries, for example, that uh, different people have, you know, for ideological reasons, different ideas about how the polity should be created, who should be who should be allowed membership, who should not be allowed membership. So homogeneity doesn't really get rid of that problem. But I think um, what has happened is that uh, the mythos, it really comes out of nationalism. Um, uh, uh, and, and really, I think going back really to the question of the non-historical nations um, after, war, after World War One was the idea somehow that uh, nationalism could provide a sort of unity that, uh, that liberal individualism uh, could not and communism uh, could not, right? And ironically, this was actually one of the arguments put forth by uh, Rocco and, uh, and Mussolini in their text on the sort of political doctrine of, of fascism, that they, that they wanted to create a kind of political alternative that offered a sense of community to people and a sense of not only membership in a community, but the need to sacrifice for that, uh, sacrifice themselves for that, for that community, right? And that's something that, uh, in, in general, possessive liberalism doesn't really account for. Um, mm-hmm. Totalitarianism, in its own way, basically uh, scratches the life out of uh, out of populations, particularly those who uh, dissent. Um, we can see that in a variety of different places uh, now. So that um, it remains this, uh, for some people, it's very seductive and, and also uh, uh, terrible myth with, myth with terrifying consequences when applied or when, it, when, it's, when people attempt to apply it. I want to talk just a little bit about American exceptionalism or the degree to which America is different than other places. And my thought is that the idea of a pure nation or nativism or any kind of ethno-nationalism just doesn't sit very well in the American's breast because, with the exception of Native Americans, we don't really have a nation in the sense that the French do or the British do or the Germans do, that we were a nation where you, you adopted citizenship based on ideas. Is, is this our myth, and to what extent is it a reality in terms of actual comparative politics as done by political scientists? Well, one of the reasons why I, I engage in a sort of three-country comparison in some ways uh, to, uh, to de-provincialize um, and question the idea of American exceptionalism, uh, in part because the United States, like Britain, uh, like France, essentially were and have been uh, imperial nation states with democracies appended to them. Mm-hmm. And that's 
stated that um, that there were a limited number of people who could participate in the polity, and there were a larger number of people who wanted to or lived in a society but um, but could not. Ironically, it would be the earlier mentioned Edward Augustus Freeman who made the argument um, in a book of essays called Impressions of, of, the, United, of the United States. Um, he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says in a sense that the United States experiment in, in, in democracy is not what is novel about it. What is novel about it is the attempt to basically have different races or nations uh, uh, as members of the same polity. Right, that for him was was the was the was really the unprecedented experiment. Except if you look at populations that are considered and have long been considered homogeneous, we find ethnonational diversity. We find it in China. We find it in Germany at uh, at, the, at, at its unification in 1871. We find it in Italy. We find it in, in just about every other nation state we can we can think of. And in that respect. The United States is no no different. I think what one of the distinguishing features about the United States is its size and scale. So, um, you know, when I talk to the um, colleagues in Europe who, who work on immigration and they talk about the fact that uh, you know the, the the scale of immigration into the United States, um, even during periods of uh, tough immigration rest- restrictions, um, just dwarfs. The immigration streams that that flow into uh, different countries within within the EU, right? But I think that this is something clearly that we we know uh, from as early as uh, recently as, as January sixth that this is not a settled question for many citizens of the United States. So there may be people who keep this idea in their breast that somehow an ethno state is, is 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 irreconcilable with U.S. democracy. But then again, they're amongst, I'm not saying all of them, but certainly amongst the, what, the 71 million uh, people who voted for Donald Trump, there's a uh, percentage of that population that, in fact, believes precisely that, that the best way to uh, make America great again is to limit immigration of peoples from different parts of the world that are considered uh, racially uh, restrictive um, to basically engage in uh, extrajudicial killings and sanctions against uh, minoritized minoritized populations, um, and these are all you know all activities or acts that fly in the face of a, of certain definitions of democracy. But I think part of what I point out in the book is that all democratic policies have their coercive and anti-democratic dimensions, right? Um, so that's in many ways the, the, the challenge, right? Where, where does the democratic polity or ethos in the United States stop and where its anti-democratic ethos begins? Mm-hmm. This is a very nice segue to my final question, and I'll quote you. You say in the conclusion to the book, how to make societies less ethnocentric and more ethnocentric is one of the great challenges of balancing pluralism and democracy in contemporary nation states. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. So the, the juxtaposition I was making there was between ethnocentric and ethocentric, right? So that um, uh, you could argue that in classical Athens after 451, 
in some sense, moved towards a model that was more ethnocentric than ethos-centric, uh, since its citizenship criteria are focused on, on origins, um, as opposed to rights and rep- responsibilities. I mean, in many ways, the French, French republicanism was an attempt, in many ways, to emphasize an ethos-centered model of republicanism, not necessarily democracy, but it was uh, and has been undermined by the very realities of France, that France, like most imperial nation states um, in the post-World War II period, have had to contend with decolonization and the influx of people who were former, uh, former uh, colonial subjects uh, into the metropole and into the, the mainland. Right? And this is, uh, in many ways, the, the challenge. If democracy, and I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm suggesting, too, by the end of the book, um, um, but it would have to be taken up uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in another book, is that part of what I'm questioning here is the limits of democracy. And should we be looking at other models or think about models that um, are uh, a bit more expansive than what we operate with. So most, I think, people in the United States would associate uh, democracy with the right to vote and the right to uh, speak one, one's mind. But as we know that in, in, in the world, uh, you know, this is a, the, the period of human history where we've had more nominally democratic polities in the world than at any other time. But it's also one of the, the moment of the greatest inequality in the history of mankind. So, I mean, this is something that Thomas Piketty points out and other economists that democracy, in some sense, uh, can well coexist with inequality. So, in order to make uh, democracy um, more accessible and open, we also need to change or expand our definition of what democracy is. Yes, you've reminded me of something that I learned many, many years ago, maybe even when I was college, and that, that's the paradox of freedom and equality. Yes. <laughs> and it keeps coming back. Um, Michael, I want to thank you uh, very much for talking with us today. And I want to ask the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually uh, working, I tend to work um, often in different books at different times, and I'm resuming a work on the relationship between fascism and racism in uh, contemporary politics. So I'm going to look at different cases um, and and look at the ways in which fascist regimes and states have, have often borrowed many of the administrative and coercive features from examining places like the United States and how um, uh, fascism, part of its political imaginary, um, is a racial, a racist uh, imaginary. <clears throat> and the distance between racial rule and fascism uh, is not that far as people would, would, would like or to hope uh, that, it, that it did. Yeah, I don't think it's far at all. <laughs> Most historians, I think, would say it's not far at all. Right, um, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Michael, thank you very much for being on the show. We've been talking to Michael Hanchard about his book, The Specter of Race, How Discrimination Haunts Western Democracy from Princeton University Press. My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. Michael, thank you again. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for great questions. I appreciate it.